Hello, this is Frank Mellorani. I'm a professor at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Boston. The CDC reports that each day over 130 Americans die from an opiate overdose and more than 2.5 million Americans suffer from opiate use disorder. We also know that over 400,000 Americans have died from an opiate overdose since 1999. I'm working on a project with a number of students and we're capturing the work being done by individuals and organizations that are on the front line of the opiate epidemic. Our goal in this project is to shed light on the individuals and organizations who are working every day to make the lives of others better as they deal with the impact of this deadly and insidious healthcare crisis. Today, I'd like to welcome Michael Higgins to our podcast. Michael is the Director of Substance Abuse Prevention in Bill Ricca and also started a program by the name of HEAT in the Wuben Court System. So, Michael, you have firsthand insight and knowledge of the opiate epidemic that's impacting almost every community in Massachusetts. I also know you're among the early activists who played a role changing the mindset of, of seeing those using and addicted to drugs as primarily battling a health issue and not as criminals. So, Mike, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So would you would you mind sharing a little bit about your background and what prompted you to become one of the resources helping others who struggle with this healthcare issue? Well, I was a probate I'm a retired probation officer, but I was a probation officer for thirty five years at the Wuben Court. And basically the last twelve years or so of that, starting in right around two thousand and three, we started noticing a influx of female, I should say, victims or female addicts coming into the courthouse with drug related offenses possession of a class A, B&Es, B&E motor vehicles. And at that time, it, it just never happened before. So we started looking into it. I asked the police prosecutors for six towns. Wuben Court is a suburban court, so to speak. It handles Wuben, Winchester, Wilmington, Stoneham, Reading, Burlington, and North Reading. So they're basically 93 and 95 around that corridor, Route 3. So we have our share of stops and we have our share of you know drug activity. However, these girls were coming into the courthouse and it was strange. They were coming in pretty much in, in numbers. And when we went to try to see what was going on, we found out that these girls basically started having boyfriends with, with opiate addictions. Eventually, they themselves becoming opiate addicts. So at that time, there were only six Section 35 beds in the state of Massachusetts for females. What was happening is when you came in for a Section 35, I'm sure you're going to explain that or how it is with everything else. I don't know if I have to get into that now. But with the Section 35, which is a petition to the court for non-voluntary commitment, once you're sectioned, you have to go somewhere. If there's not a bed, you have to go to jail. So we were seeing, we first started out, there was like 100 different, 100 females a day being stored, being placed in the Framingham prison, MCI Framingham. So we were going, that's crazy. So we started to check into it. We started to keep our statistics. We started to notice this. And then eventually that led to some changing in legislation. However, it also brought us into the, the area of the OxyContin crisis, which obviously we all know about. At that time, we also started really noticing overdoses of people younger people, athletes, prominent people, not just the typical, so to speak, stereotype drug addict. So we started trying to help them find some beds and it was difficult. In particular, I had one kid, I'm not going to name his name, from Burlington that I spent six hours of one of my days just as probation officers. We do a lot of other stuff too. So this was basically on the side. I spent six hours trying to find this kid a bed in a detox. And what happened was he went home and I told him, him and his mother, that don't let him out. Have him just keep, have him keep calling till a bed pops up. Well, he told his mother he was going to a Bruins game. He was a Burlington native. He went down the street, met up with somebody. 
Hughes died, died in the Dunkin' Donuts down there, and that just bothered me immensely. So I just said, geez, if we are spending seven, eight hours, what's going on? So then we started paying attention again to the what was going on with the Oxycontins. And what was happening was that, you no, know, everybody was, these were the 80s, the Oxy 80s. So that's like, that's like having 12 regular Percocets, 12 to 13, five milligram Percs. So everybody started hitting those, doing those, and that was the big craze. And what was happening, it was these guys, after the society cut down, I don't mean to go around in circles here, but society cut down on things. The Walgreens, the CVSs, the Rite Aids got together with the federal government, DEA, everybody got together and they, they put an ixnay on, on what was going on and how you distribute the oxys. Which they stopped writing scripts, they do PDFs, they do a lot of stuff. Well, this led to the aspect that they say to themselves, what are we going to do? How are we going to continue our high? And what we saw was the majority majority of them would just drive up to Lawrence and buy a $10 bag of heroin, get the same high as a, as an $80 Oxycontin. And a lot of them weren't IV users. They were sniffing it. But back then, after sniffing the opiates for, for 30 days, you, you weren't getting high anymore. So eventually you ended up with the needle. That's what's one of the um, beginning cases and the beginning aspects of how the heroin epidemic and the opiate epidemic started. And then everybody got started working on that and they cut it down. You no, know, they just stopped. They did a good job of cutting it down. And then all of a sudden, you had the perk 30s appear in pretty much the same situation that you'd have the people, you know, that you'd cut down, the society would cut down a bit on the on the enforcement of it. And then they realized they don't have to spend $30 a day. But the $30 a day brought back a whole, brought in a whole new culture of younger kids, ages 18 to 25, using the opiates. I'd say that started about 2008, 2009. And then that just blew it up all over again for um, the same scenario, they realize they can drive to Lawrence and now bags were $5 after 30 days of snorting, you don't get high anymore. And then boom, you're on the needle. So that's what we saw at the courthouse. We had an influx of that going on. So based on what happened with the girls, the female situation with the beds and this epidemic and us going to way too many wakes and funerals of kids we knew, some prominent kids, you hear the stories of athletes, but what happened was we decided to do something about it in 2005. We didn't jump on the bandwagon. We, we got a representative from each individual town to keep track of things. We met on a frequent basis, myself and Vinnie Perrell, the chief probation officer at the courthouse. We set, we, we, we just developed a program. We petitioned the state for money everywhere, the federal government for money. We went through the law. We went through the whole gambit. Then finally, we just decided to have all our senators and reps in our area come to us. Uh, a little breakfast at the courthouse and we gave my spiel of what was going on and halfway through the spiel senator senator uh oh i forget his name from arlington excuse me he uh bobby haven so he stood up and said michael how much money do you need i said five hundred thousand. i just threw a figure at him well we got it he, he worked with stevie tallman who you know and knows does a great job with this we got our 500 grand but we would not release what we were doing for almost a year or two. We have the educational component, but we didn't want to, if you're going to offer something, you got to be able to deliver it. So we hooked up with, um, now it's Leahy Behavioral Health. It used to be Cab and Danvers. So we hooked up and we got 10 beds for eight, goal was 18 to 25 year olds. Cause that, at that time, that was the struggling force. So we got beds, you go to a detox down below in Danvers and you go upstairs to the heat beds and you stay up to 30 days till they find you the bed. It's, probably the start of stabilization units in the state. They weren't around then. So we decided to do that because we needed the immediate care. Being in the courthouse, 
would have a would, would have a number of clients coming in. There was no outreach at that time, if any, very few. So we decided to go that route. We went that route. We have an educational component to the day. We don't have our beds anymore. They went to a different direction with the state money, but we still educate. This is going to be our 15th year at doing this, but um, that's how it all started because we were just seeing too many people coming in that we knew, and, and we thought we had the ability, and we actually had the beds for, I think, six years. Yeah, amazing project that you and uh, Vinnie Piero put together. I've been to several of the conferences and they're always so well done and so moving. Well, we try to bring you up to current events, what's going on. It isn't always about situations that everybody wants to hear, but if you notice, we're sort of ahead of the curve in a lot of our ideas. And that's just because we've been around long enough. That's what it all started with, with how I got involved. And, and after it ends, we were getting, Vinnie and I both, 10 calls a day. Back then, no one found, found beds for anybody, very few. So they knew you could find a bed. We used to get all the beds for the drug court, all the beds for everybody. And uh, we still get our phone calls, but thank God, not as much. Try to concentrate on some other things now. But we still do the heat. We still do it. We have a passion for it. I retired five years ago. I still end up going to the conference and doing things. And now, as you know, I'm up here in Bill Ricker because of that. Yeah. You know, so so let's move to that aspect of, of your career, Michael. You, you said you, quote unquote, retired, but actually you're now the director of uh, substance abuse prevention in the town of Bill Ricker. And I, and I know Bill Ricker, like most of the communities in Massachusetts have been really hard hit by the opiate epidemic. So can you share with us uh, your, your perspective on Bill Ricker is how are things going there? They're getting worse, getting better, and you know how the communities responded. And maybe you can tell us what you actually do on a day-to-day basis to help people in the community. Well, Bill Ricker, as you know, is a blue-collar community of about 45,000 people, I believe. And uh, it's close to Lowell, which is Third, one of the top three cities in the state, and it's by Lawrence in Essex County. The DEA, when we were doing our thing, every year, Vinnie and I, not to tie it back in, but we'd go, we'd go somewhere where we saw that there was issues with opiates. And, you know, we've been all over the East Coast to the, all the DEA offices, and they'd have us in, we'd try to offer education. But every DEA office we went into, the round zero for the opiate epidemic is the Lawrence area in Essex County for sales and usage. So the is right smack dab in the middle of it. The town manager here, John Curran, had approached me before about what he was trying to do while I was a probation officer. And as you well know, how it all started out with you doing what you did to find out if it was necessary to, to come to Bill Ricker, to have this in Bill Ricker. So we did that and the opportunity came up for Bill Ricker. They wanted to be part of the substance abuse coalition they have here and they wanted, they felt it was a need. You know that because you did the study, I do believe, correct? We were involved with that, yeah. Yeah. So we we, I saw there was issues up here, so I was offered the job, and I took the job because of the situation up here, because of the need. And when we got up here, there really wasn't much going on, so I just basically took what I was doing down the courthouse and brought it up here. The first thing we looked at, how we're tracking our overdoses, what's going on with that, and I got together with the police department, Deputy Chief Roy Frost, the chief, and we started keeping track of overdoses. He was doing that anyway. We tried to keep, you know, keep an accurate account of it. And then I was seen in the community that there was no relief for any of the for any kids that got arrested or alternative programs. So we started some of those. But more importantly, we started a program. 
It's called Boo, Erica Opiate Outreach. And that was based on the fact that the first year I got here, I think it was 2014, and they had recorded about 40 some odd overdoses. Well, after that first year, we started keeping accurate accounts, and I'd get notified by the police department. Roy Frost, that there was an overdose with a knock-in. So any of the overdoses that the people survived, he'd give it to me to follow up, to see what we can do to try to help the people, help the, these individuals. So I started calling all the houses. It was working okay. One out of 13 would respond to me. Well, we sat down, myself, the town manager, the chief, the deputy chief, and we just said, we got to do more about it. So we decided to do this outreach that instead of uh, just calling, I'd go cold call to knock on doors with the detective a plain clothes detective in a plain car would follow up on all these and would knock on the doors to see if they were home. And, you know, you know this field. You get doors shut in your face. You can't take anything personal, but you got to offer something. So would go, would knock on the door. If they weren't home, would leave a card. If someone answered, would train them in knock-in right there on the spot. I can train knock-in. So we'd carry it with us and would train the loved ones in knock-in and listen to their stories to see if we can help them. And as usual, it comes down to they want to help for their whoever it is, whatever spouse it is or mother, father, but it's hard to get the person to do it. So that's what we did. We followed, we follow up then we continuously follow up. So in this situation, we average about 75 overdoses a year in my four years here, five years here. This year, for some reason, we're, we're down 43% in the Narcan overdose. That's excellent, but I can't really answer why. I could say that everybody's educated. It's a different generation of kids. Yeah, that's very encouraging. I wasn't aware that that the overdose had come down so much in Bill Ricker. Yeah, fatalities are still pretty consistent, but they have come down. You'd like to think it's because of the job you're doing, but I don't know if it's that or not, to be honest with you. I think it's like, I think the education part works. We still do that. I mean, we have a a committee here, the Ricker Substance Substance Abuse Prevention Committee, that's very active. And uh, we we put on presentations, we go to the schools, we help with their curriculum. We're, we're actively involved. And Bill Ricker isn't a reaction city. It's a proactive. The town manager gives me my freedom to come up with ideas to do what we got to do. But I think the simplest thing is education. Keep education. It's a question of how low you go with education. It touches base in preschools and the elementary schools. But I leave that up to the teachers because they know the kids better. We try to all work together to get things done around here. Sounds Which, like you're really making progress. We're trying. We're trying, but you know, that could change tomorrow. But the problem, the thing with us us is is we're open-minded. I have an office here. People can come in and see me, but you know, the sad part about all this is the parents and the loved ones want so much for their loved ones. And what they want isn't necessarily what we can do in these situations. I mean, I've probably interviewed over 3,000 addicts and I don't know if that's an accurate account or not, maybe more, but you got to get them. You got to sit them down. They're probably going to say no four or five times to you, but when they say, yeah, you got to be ready. And that's the thing with anybody in this field that's going to be a crisis intervention expert or, or the new recovery coaches. And there's one just word of advice I give to them. And even the families, just make sure you have an exit plan in place just in case they say yes. And as simple as that sounds, it's complicated because the, the way you help people in this field is much different than you would in a family situation. Families are strong. They believe they can stay together and do things. But this is a different animal. I mean, you just have to know your way around and know where to go, what to do. In all the years I've been doing this, I have 
touch base. And I really don't send anybody to a place I haven't visited. I think that's important for people too that want to step into this field. You got to see your environment. You might hear it's good, but I've been around. I've seen some not so good places, seen some yeah. excellent places. And you got to know the insurance end, as you're well aware, also. So, but. That's my advice. I mean, go ahead. Talk about being ready, Mike. What, what do you mean? Place for them to go have rehabilitation facility or sure. what do you mean by so, exit plan? An exit plan is, you know, you want to help your kid. You want to help your person. You get together as a family, you meet, and this is the plan. But what are you going to do if they say, yeah, you just got to, you got to see what they need. Do they need inpatient? It's not what you want them to go to. It's what fits them. Not everybody needs inpatient. There are a lot of good outpatient programs and you're well aware of the MATs, which I think work also. Some people can deal with being on a methadone clinic. Some people can deal with being on Suboxone. Some people can deal with being on Vivitrol. Some people can't. Some people need inpatient. There's the detox. If you're going to go inpatient, there's the detox component to knock you down. And then your placement afterwards. There's many a program out there, private and public alike, that you you got to research to find these. And the more you research, the more you become educated in what might fit for this person. You just don't want to send them somewhere to have them give a negative experience. So there's plenty of resources out there and you should review them. You should see what's pretty good. You can go online and do a lot of this, but you know, anybody in the field that's going to be any good in this field will have a have a knowledge of where to send somebody after they interview them. I don't know if that makes so, sense to you. No, it makes perfect sense. So so let me ask you a slightly different question, Michael, which is why are we in this epidemic? What, what are some of the things that, like the root causes of why we as a communities and, and a country have this healthcare crisis on our hands? Well, I just think it's a generation that enjoyed just stealing mommy and daddy's Percocets, the five milligrams, and getting high on it, enjoying it. I ask you this. I, I mean, if we were growing up in these ages, we'd probably be the same ones. I mean, I, I'm 62 years of age. I grew up in the 70s. but I mean, I drank. I did some things. The opportunities there to do it and any kind of deviation, next thing you know, you're, you're into the perks. Well, the people that reach the needle, when you reach the needle, you definitely need the help. You need yeah. the help anyway, but if you can keep someone off the needle, and I think there's hope. Once you get them on the needle, they're going to hit rock bottom before they want to get help. But to answer that question, I just feel that the opportunity was there, peer pressure, parents not knowing the signs of what was going on. I think when we all first came out with an educational component to what this is, we we had come out with something in our original heat pamphlet. We got it off of the addicts, to, and we got it off of the parents to say what they missed. Simple things like cotton being around the room. They'd steal their heroin and cotton. They'd shoot it into it and extract it and get high. That was a way of storing it once they bought it. Long sleeves in the summertime. Different friends. Weird phone calls. I don't think the parents were educated enough on seeing what was going on to understand it. And working in a courthouse, two of our towns were Reading and Winchester. They're pretty affluent towns. The people that walked to our front door and the stories they told Vinnie and I about how much they spent and what they've been gone through and didn't realize and how many funerals we've been to parents that didn't realize. And then you have the stigma effect that they didn't want it to be known that their kid was an addict because that's all communities too in this part. They didn't know. They didn't want to know. Your kid's an addict. You know, I, no, not my kid. Not my kid, you know? Oh, absolutely. Sorry, so I, what keeps you interested and motivated to keep going on this? Can't turn when your back on it like that, you know? You just can't turn your back. Someone calls for help, you know, you, you got to be there. You never know who it is. It could be a relative, you know? My phone doesn't ring to say, hey, Michael, you want to go to the Pats game this weekend? That doesn't happen, you know? My phone rings for a reason, and I just don't like turning my back on it. I give a lot of credit now to all these outreach workers, recovery coaches, and that, because a lot they're educated on how to find a bed for people. So 
I don't have to find as many beds for people, but if I get a phone call, I'll find that bed because of the past relationships. Yeah. You, you keep on it because, you know, you can't explain it. You just got to do it. We're certainly glad you are doing it. So if you were the governor, if you had all the power in the legislature, what would you like to see the state cities do in terms of funding or other things that might make it? I think that, see, before we had Steve Tolman, you, you remember Steve Tolman, correct? Of course, yeah. No one's done more for the opiate epidemic than when Steve Tolman was a senator. And he'd have Vinnie and I's ears. We'd play golf with them once to twice a year. It's pretty funny. We'd go up and play with him and one of his lobbyists, and he'd ask us a million questions. More Vinnie than me, because Vinnie has the title. So he'd be in the middle of trying to present something and ask us if this was right, as that was right. So we gave a lot of opinions through that, what we thought would work. I think this governor does a great job with it, but it's a big pie, and everybody wants a piece of it. I think education is always the key component. When we started HEAT, there wasn't a single bed for 18 to 25-year-olds. There wasn't a single program that focused on that. And that's what we focused on, 18 to 25 at-risk, first-time opiate people. And that's where our stats said to do it, and that's where we went. The average age for an overdose up here in Billerick is 31, between male and female. That's higher than that. But I just think they do a great job, and the government does a good job. I mean, the czar was Mike Botticelli, Obama's drug czar. Now he works for a private company here in Massachusetts, but he was the director of BSAS for many years. I think we're on the right page, but I think a couple things. The thing we're really lacking in this state is facilities for adolescents. There are 13-year-olds that are opiate addicts. Let's not pretend, you know. So there's the place in Worcester you can send them, or you can send them down to Connecticut to the Newport Academy. That's pretty much your limitations of what you have for an adolescent. Now, this adolescent is under 18 now to go away to get help. The uh, the other program, the STAR program, and the doctor, Zumi there, he his program's gone, but they still do drugstore theater, but there's no more program. So I think we have to offer more situations for adolescents that are on, on drugs, especially now with the vaping situation and the problem we're having with that. Yeah. And it's just that there there isn't any place to send a kid. I had a call Connecticut for, an, for a 15-year-old the other day, and I said, I can't help you. I have no place to, to put you to recommend. There might be private counseling, but I think we need a, a revamp of the, uh, let's be honest with you, the mental health status is under 18, so that's a 17-year-old. There's a lot of mature 17-year-olds. There's a lot of 17-year-olds that are gang members, a lot of 17-year-olds into drugs, but no real place to send them now. And then you get on one year to 16, and that's where they'd have to go. That's what's missing. So how about for the average citizen or the student who, let's say, just wants to do something to help out? What can students at you know, Boston universities and colleges, what can they do to help out with this catastrophic problem? I think data is important. Being in an educational component, studies, data, you know, follow up on things, get real time. You know, I think that's very important. And you're aware of that because that's what you do a lot of the times. But I think that's important. Or find out if they're looking to volunteer. I don't know if you're talking for a career or volunteering, but the town you live in, you can go back and check and see what they have for situations. I get phone calls for volunteers and when I can use them, I'll use them. Most of the time with my situation, it's more me running around last minute, but that's pretty much what I'd I'd recommend to them. Great. All right. Well, hey, look, Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your time. Do you have any questions before we go? No, I don't know if I talk too much or not, but you know me when I get going. Everything was excellent. You're a wealth of uh, knowledge and insight. So I really appreciate um, what you're doing and, and your time uh, with us today. So, And you keep up the good work, too. All right. Thanks, Michael. All right. See you, bud.